Happy birthday, Levi Strauss. This is the Focus Group. It's the savvy side of 9 to 5. Listen. Bueller. 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 Laugh. <laughs> and learn. Negotiation. This is what you do in business. This is the Focus Group with Tim Bennett. S-T-A-U-N-C-H. And John Nash. Keep your clothes looking neat and clean. We're all business. Except when we're not. That's it. That's it. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome to the Focus Group. Tim Bennett here, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Mr. John T. Nash. Welcome to uh, toward the. I guess we're we're plowed through February already. Be fast. Short month. Twenty sixth. Short month. Is that what you call it? Short month. February is like it's the worst winter month normally. The one you just want to get through, and right. then in March you're like, aren't we done with all this? Right. <laughs> so I, I have a, I saw something on the, across the news today. I wanted to ask you about. So do you have any gift cards? No, I tend to try to use them, and but like sometimes I'll use a gift card and there'll be like a dollar ninety left right. or whatever. But that's all someone else is keeping that money, right? Yeah. Well, boys in the booth. So we we've got Steve and Garrett, and I, I can't see who's and Robbie Bobby's Robbie back Bobby. there. I can't. There he is. Do you guys have gift cards that you've held on to? Tons. Never intentionally, but yeah, a lot. So how much do you think they said there's 150 Americans that have unused gift cards? And what do you think the average million? 150 million. What do you think the average balance is? Anyone have a guess? Total? Or, or just or for one per, card. You know, when you when person. you when you put it over the over the 150 million people, on average, what what do you, what the cards how much seventy five dollars? Seventy five. Like their individual card or like their just total? Yeah, total. Oh, total. Okay. Uh, just an average. A weird number, like yeah, like eighty six bucks. Eighty six bucks. Robbie, Bobby, you have a guess? I'm gonna go two hundred bucks. Two hundred, John. I, I was gonna go one fifty. John's the closest. Oh, Price is Right. Dun dun dun. Da, 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 one sixty seven. One sixty seven per, per person, person who has on unused gift cards. Yeah. So when they average it out, based upon all that they know that's out there of unused gift card money. So they said it's amazing that people haven't spent it. But I, I found, and the reason I found an envelope with three or four Starbucks cards in them. Seriously? Yeah, but I, you know, you don't I- don't go to Starbucks anymore, Not as you? much as I used to, but I have them and I thought I might as well just go get some, buy some coffee because I do drink coffee. I might as well just buy beans or something. Yeah, that you could just you put in your just use it up. coffee maker, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But I was surprised by that. So you're good though, you use your cards. I, oh yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then sometimes like uh, Bob gave me a gift card this past year for my birthday for Roan, a clothing manufacturer, R-H-O-N-E. Right. But he knew that I was going to go right away because I was wanting some pants and something else that they made. So I spent that right away. But normally, if you give someone like a store card, it could sit around for quite some time, right? Well, and the danger on some of them, because I had, I somebody had given me a card and I'd, I'd gone to use it, and it had, I guess, it started depleting the money that was available. So if somebody gave you for fifty, they're like, well, there's only thirty-five on here because the card's old. I, I don't think that's fair. Well, and you know what happened over the holidays this this Christmas. Remember when we were we were had that gift card thing happen? Yeah, well, you had your stolen. So I had bought a gift card uh, to use at a CVS here in the city. I forget the balance. Let's just say it was two hundred dollars, and um, I put it in my pocket or, or put it away because it was for for buying things and for other stuff. When I eventually went to use it, maybe a week and a half later, the woman's like, "This is it's empty." And I go online to check it out, and a majority of purchases were made on the card at 2 in the morning at the CVS that the card was bought at. 
inside and job. So I'm like, well, you know, I'm I'm contesting this. Yeah, well, you know, you can do that. <laughs> Whatever happened with that? Nothing. But don't they know? So in other words, if it happened inside, so you buy it at CVS and it happens at CVS. At don't two you know it's an employee? Yeah. And don't they have cameras? Why wouldn't Visa or MasterCard, whoever had the card, Amex, go, I guess it's just too little of an amount for them to bother? So the problem that they you that get I, screwed. The problem that I encountered is that I'm not I'm not contesting a purchase. I'm not like saying that I made a purchase at a store or an online thing and it didn't happen to go correctly. I'm contesting the fact that I bought a gift card and then someone else drained it, and it's technically very hard to prove that I didn't make those purchases myself. I mean, it's my word against. So I said to the woman on the customer service line, I said, okay, let's look at this. I said, these charges were made at one in the morning, one or two in the morning. It's right. a 24 hour CVS near Columbus Circle. That's correct. I said, well, what would I be doing down there? I bought it five days earlier, you know, and this was done. What did they buy? Does it say what they bought? No, it just says, uh, it was all even numbers too. Um, and then there was one oddball purchase at an associated grocery store in a different neighborhood of the city. And then that's what drained it. That was what the one that like, <laughs> so from that point forward, I, I'm, I'm a little more, and then I read online how this goes. So how do they do it? All right. So people go in with their phones, right? And they will go to a card rack and they'll photograph the barcodes. Right. But you have to peel that paper back, right? Some, yeah. And, and, or, so that's one thing they'll do, and then, then they hack into the store's database of, uh, for that. So when a transaction happens and the card's activated, they actually know the card's activated. Now, according to everything I read online, it was all about inside job. You know, the, yeah. the, a manager or someone at the register would have to know that they had just plugged in a value for a number, and hell, this number is, this is a good number, you could use that. See, I'd have gone right down to that CVS. Accused everybody. <laughs> I thought about it. Because obviously you're not the first one this has happened to. It's obviously, they, they, you, you can't be the first one no. this has happened to there. And uh, she wouldn't say anything about it, but I'm sure that there had to have been a pattern. It was disturbing because I remember Bob comes into my office and he's like, I told him what happened. He goes, you were robbed. Yes. You got robbed. I wasn't at gunpoint and I'm fine and, you know, but it was. Oh, you were robbed. I was robbed, yeah. yeah. So, it's kind of like uh, when my mother and sister did the dance contest. Dash 22. Singleton says you were Singleton we were robbed. I think I'm in number two. Number two. Lisa's dance number was a thriller, I think. It was off the wall. It was uh, Michael Jackson's off the wall. I remember them practicing in the living room. You pushing the chairs back, the tone arm on the record. Go the tone arm. Think, heels, think, think about that for a second. Started, the, was tone arm, the tone arm and the weight. You remember that weight at the back? Yeah. Perfect thing. You don't groove the records. Yeah, so that after the International House of Pancakes at whatever time of night, <laughs> the, the contest was thrown. Singleton says we were robbed. <laughs> what caught your eye this week? What caught your eye? Here's what Tim and John Singleton. found. Copyright caught my eye uh, and its enforcement thereof. And I just, I just look at some of this stuff and I say to myself, why do people bother, right? Headline is, a school played the Lion King at a fundraising event. Now it has to pay a third of what it raised. What do you mean they played it? They had a, uh, oh, so, like say, a recording or? an elementary school in Berkeley, California, hosted a parents' night out fundraiser. They didn't think playing the 2019 remake, the live version of the Lion King, would do anything besides keep the kids happy. 
That was until Emerson Elementary School received an email from a licensing company Thursday, more than two months after the event, saying they had to pay $250 for illegally screening the movie. One of the dads bought the movie at Best Buy, PTA President David Rose told CNN. He owned it. We literally had no idea we were breaking any rules. No one really knows how this licensing company got wind of the fact. Well, it's in L.A., right? Someone's hey, parent. They showed the Lion King. You can imagine yeah. it, right? Um, an email sent to the school from Movie Licensing USA informed Emerson faculty and the company had received an alert. Some Someone snitched, basically. Oh, yeah, exactly. That the Lion King was screened during an event on November 15th. And they manage Disney's licenses. And since the school does not have a license with the company, it's been asked to pay two fifty. So they th- parents are up in arms. They're like they 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 have to scrape the money together. And you know, two hundred fifty for a public school is a lot of money these right. days. And I love this section. Rules are rules, and people who break them must face the consequences. But when it comes to this two hundred fifty movie screening fee, the issue goes much deeper than just licensing. Berkeley City Council member Lori Drost, who is also a parent at Emerson Elementary, believes Disney's being unfair. There was an initiative passed in 1979 called Prop 13, which casts the property tax on all land. And so Disney's property tax rates are at 1978 values. Think about that for a minute, which translates into millions upon millions of dollars a year that Disney is not paying. Because of that, our schools are now extremely underfunded. We went from the 70s being among the top education systems in the U.S. to one of the lowest. It's just so appalling that an incredibly wealthy corporation is having its licensing agents chase after a PTA to raise insane amounts of money just to pay teachers, cover financial scholarships, and manage school programs. And then she said, we would be enthusiastic about paying the license fee if Disney was willing to have their properties reassessed and paid some additional property taxes. They're not the same thing. She, yeah, you know, that's a bit of a stretch. Although I understand what she's saying. <laughs> yeah. So, could you believe that? I think that's just criminal. I mean, obviously, it's a school. It's an elementary it's a school. school function. A little function that they had that plan. I mean, it, it's it's not as if they were selling tickets. Come see the Lion King. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different deal. I don't know. I think that's when things run amok. So you remember when uh, Disney bought 20th Century Fox when they right. finally closed the deal? A lot of a lot has changed since then. So. The Rocky Horror Picture Show right. was a picture that Fox owned that they used to let people rent for like almost no money for fundraisers for right. you know how they do it at a midnight and exactly dissipatory right that's kind of vanished into the vaults and really? Dis- Disney will allow that to be licensed and shown but they're, you're going to pay a pretty penny for it so there are these weird unintended consequences when corporations merge and that's this is this this is not about a merger that was Rocky Horror Picture Show this is about showing the latest remake of the Lion King frankly why are they even charging? I, I, I guess it got good reviews, but I just remember the animated Lion King. <laughs> well, you know, that's that goes back to a similar thing with one of our clients where they wanted to play music. And we said, you better buy the licensing package because of where they Walk in the high store. profile. And it's a high profile mm-hmm. venue that you get caught and you get screwed. I had friends of mine at a restaurant that got got hammered for playing a radio station. Just radio. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't had a license, a uh, commercial license. So different than you playing it in your home, which is what most people do. Or you throw your iPod, you know, you throw your phone or your iPod if you still mm-hmm. have an iPod on for music. Can't do that if you get caught. Well, I guess this has always been going on. I, I, let's go back to the days of mixtapes. 
mm-hmm. and parties, dorm parties and stuff. Yeah. No, no one paid a licensing fee to pay music at a, do- a DJ at a dorm party, right? No, that's when things were easier. <laughs> so that's what caught my eye. I found a new career for us. Uh-oh. So the, the, um, the headline of this, which I laughed, I laughed about, this came out of Queerty. And uh, but it's been reported. I've seen it other places. So it says terminally, terminally ill gay biker hires a man to out him at his own funeral. I, I did read this. I didn't read the whole thing, though. So there's a private investigator in Australia. Apparently he does this for a living. So the client was a biker. As and, in motorcycle. Uh, motorcycle gang, motorcycle yeah. rider. And he was fearful to reveal his sexuality to his family and friends while he was alive. So he hired this guy to go to the funeral. So he had so his whole sole purpose there was not for the living but for the dead mm-hmm. because he was paid to go into the funeral and let everybody know that he was gay and his lover was amongst them but they weren't going to say who the lover was at the funeral <sighs> and that there were also other people there that he didn't particularly care for and didn't want them there and they were asked to leave. This is quite a job. So the so, guy, the guy that's hired to do this, had a pre-created he, he, list he, he from he the deceased. With, he sits with the deceased. This is his job. He sits with the deceased and goes through. I don't want these seven people. He said, eat. "I go through exactly what people want." He goes, "We either videotape it or I write it down." And then my job is to go deliver the message as a non-partisan person. So from the dead, how much do you think it would cost to hire this guy? Oh, I'm guessing this is like includes uh, travel. Oh, includes travel. Yeah. Guys, what do you think to hire someone to come and come to your funeral and let everyone the know funeral. the way it is? I'm going to go with $6,500, but I... But You must have read then. That's what it is, $6,500. Oh, but Garrett, see, see, Garrett could have done like, Garrett could have done like $6,875. You know, it could have been in prices. You know what Garrett's doing. $6,500, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So the guy's name is Bill Edgar. He says uh, he's done a number of these over the years. He's done 17 so far in the last year. Um, he said one client went a little further knowing they were going to die. He was instructed to stand up at, at those that were gathered there. And he did have to ask people to leave. And then he was to tell his former best friend who was going to deliver the eulogy that he knew he tried to seduce his wife. So he calls out his friend who's just about to give the eulogy. By the way, I know you were trying to screw my wife all these years. Um, he also had another crash, uh, another, <laughs> another one where he went and crashed the wedding. He said it included a woman in her seventies who wanted to inform her husband that she'd been having an affair for quite some time and was going to out the guy there at the, at the funeral that she was having the affair with. Can you imagine? So let's pause on that one for a minute. Um, was, wh- you don't want to see Edgar showing up at the funeral. Huh? <laughs> no, you do not. Edgar is not a welcome guest. So the woman who decides that she's going to alert her husband. Who's alive. That he, that she's, she's basically had an affair for maybe 10, who knows, a number of years. What's the point of that? Well, they say that. They say, why don't you just do these things while you're alive? And they said, for a lot of people, this is just, they said, he said he's found, because that was the question, he said he's found that when people know they're going to die, they turn into monsters. He said, if you know you've got a terminal illness or you're going to die, because people seem to get very, very, very much full of revenge. So the, in the case of the woman who decides to alert her husband to the affair, that there must be some reason why she wanted to do that. She must either she was an unhappy marriage. I mean, yeah. right? Or I mean, did you know, let her husband like she was unhappy in her marriage and just wanted to you know blow the whole thing up. The uh, so for this biker that wanted to be um, that wanted to be outed. He also then 
he didn't want his lover to be um, identified, but he did want his motorcycle then to be pushed into the and on top of the coffin when they filled the dirt in. So he had very specific things that were supposed to do. He said when he started to interrupt the funeral, he said, I was told to sit down and F, up, F off. He said a number of people then said, no, 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 we want to hear it. <laughs> so a lot of people did want to hear what's going on. Wow. He said, um, he said there were a couple of other ones. Let's see. He said to your point of what happens when people know. He said people's thoughts and feelings change before they die. He said they have a whole different attitude. He said it's almost as if the the person about to die flicks a switch and they turn into monsters. He says it's really quite terrible. Um, he said I do it as as respect for the uh, not as respect to the living, but out of respect for the dead. Um, he said I'm a nobody. I act in the interest of the person in the coffin. He he was paid to do uh, 17 funerals. He also now has expanded his business. He does home sweeps. <laughs> So if you know you're going to die, he'll go in and take your take anything embarrassing out of the home. or As long as he knows where to go, right? Yeah. He's told where to go get things and throw them away so the family doesn't find them. But I thought, what a business. I, I, I'm still fixated by that comment of his that you've said a couple times now that when people know they're going to die, like a terminal illness or something, mm -hmm. they turn into monsters. Yeah, he says, I sit with the people. We sit, we write it all down together. We videotape it. I stand up and tell the person who's about to die what exactly I'm going to say. And uh, he goes, it's, it seems to be, um, he goes, I have no problem with it because I'm separate from the loved ones, the mourners, the family, and the friends. I'm a nobody. But have you had the, so you and I have both known a couple of people who've passed, who've had terminal illnesses, or they've, they've known the end date for a while that they were given, but I don't recall them turning into monsters or wanting, don't either. Or wanting to reveal things that, you know. He does say some things are nice. He had one woman that passed and his she had hired him to send a letter every month to the husband telling him how much she loved him and will not forget him. I thought that was a little creepy. He also says he's asked to do things to commemorate anniversaries, Valentine's Day. He had to deliver a round the world ticket to one of uh, to somebody who passed and they bought a round the world trip ticket to to a loved one. He does he says some things sometimes things are nice. He will not break the law. He said one guy wanted him to, when he, he died, to also put his dog to sleep so they could be buried together. He said he wouldn't do that. Another one, he said if somebody commits a serious crime and they want to confess, he says, I'll tell the police. He goes, I won't let them do that, and I won't assist anybody in taking their lives. But I, I thought, you know, he's probably busy. I, this is a service I will not be using. <laughs> Could you do the job? Could I do the job? I guess doing the job is one thing, right? Um, I don't know. I guess I, I, I'm going to say I could do the job until such point as I might get kind of like burned out by hearing some of this stuff or people's motivations, right? I think it's worth a shot. Something to do. I don't know. I think it would be depressing or I don't know. I, I guess you, because you, he says you have to interrupt the funeral. By the way, I've got something to say. Who are you? Who's this? And then you... You spew it oh, out. of course. You know, that makes sense because the family, like, the, so the, all the planning happens, right? And it's timed out. You talk to the priest or your whoever's officiating the, the funeral rites, depending on the religion. But you would have to interrupt because it's not like a wedding. Yeah. Does anybody have any no, he says he interrupts, <laughs> objections? He interrupts the service because I have something to say. So, yeah. It says less about the living and more about the dead, in my opinion. Um, the, the desire to actually like stick you from the grave is now the biker coming out is gay. 
at his own funeral. Yeah. This is, I thought when you started reading this and I'm thinking of the headline, why didn't he do it when he was alive? He said he was fearful about what people would think of him. He was, he was of a different generation is what, it, what the excuse was. And, the, and even this guy, Edgar, said he was surprised that the guy... Even it's the 2020s, yeah, right? He said, I'm surprised the guy wanted me to do it. He said, but he said that's what he wanted. I guess people write things in wills. Right? Oh, yeah. So it's the same sort of thing. I just think that score settling when someone's dead is so pointless. I mean, they can't even respond. And, and you leave, you throw this crap into the room, right? It's like a stink bomb. Yeah. <laughs> Remember stink bombs when we were kids? And boom. And what, what are you left with? You're left with an unaltered, and now a, a definitely different picture of the person that's passed yes. It's Imagine doing this you know, at weddings. You've seen those videos at weddings where people get up and they say something. Well, I actually laugh at some of those. Like that, We did a, a caught our eye where this woman went to her own wedding, and as they were saying the vows, she began reading a, a, chi- a chain of text messages from a stranger who basically told her that her, grew, her husband-to-be right. was sleeping with multiple people, including her bridesmaid or something. And everybody what do you do at that point? And <laughs> <laughs> she ended up having the party. They did have a party, but it was the I'm not getting married party. But wow, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how people handle that. Our business birthday. Everyone does celebrity birthday greetings, but the Focus Group is the only show in the universe that celebrates business birthdays. Loeb Strauss was born today, February 26, 1829. He died at 73 in 1902. He's a German-American businessman who founded the first company to manufacture blue jeans. Levi Strauss and Company, founded in San Francisco, 1853. He was born in Germany and uh, made his way to America. He worked for several years as a traveling salesman in Kentucky. And uh, when he was in Kentucky, they changed his name. They gave him a biblical name of Levi. I was literally going to ask you where Levi, because you said his name was Loeb. Loeb. L-O-E-B. L-O-E-B, yeah. yeah. So they changed his name to Levi. And uh, he made his way out to San Francisco uh, during the gold rush. In the 1850s, he opened up a wholesale business there, and he imported dry goods from his brothers in New York. So he sold things like clothing and bedding and combs, purses, handkerchiefs, those sort of things, tents. Uh, Customers complained that the ordinary work pants that he was selling ripped too easily in the rugged work of mining. So he took and had some pants made from canvas from the tents he had there. So he had some pants made out of canvas. Everybody complained that those pants were too uncomfortable. <laughs> it's like Goldilocks. This so, bed is just right. So he knew of a French-made fabric called, and you know French better than me, S-E-R-G-E-D-E-N-I-M-E-S. So Serge de Nenum. Serge de Nenum. Serge de Nenum. Yeah. Serge de Nenum, which he Americanized the denim. Denim. Okay. That's where denim got its name. So one of his customers, Jacob Davis, was also working on riveting pants at stress points because it would rip too easy. So Strauss and Davis got together and uh, with their new French denim and uh, decided to make uh, what we now know as jeans. And they patented uh, the process in 1873 and had a new style of work pants. They also pat- they also then started riveting the pockets because they would rip too, instead of just at the stretch points. stress points. They were first marketed as waist-high overalls. They became the most popular men's workwear. He uh, grew the company to be a multi-million dollar company. When he died, he never married. When he died, he left the company to his four nephews. This I thought was odd. So he, he died in 1902. His estate was only worth, at the time, $6 million. 
Mm. I thought that was low. They said in equivalent dollars today, it would be 174 million, which still, still seems low. Kind of low for a brand like Levi Strauss. Levi Strauss, right? right? Yeah. I guess he didn't. They said uh, 1994, he was inducted into the uh, Hall of Great Westerners in the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum Hall of Fame. Levi Strauss. Talk about transforming not only um, the look of the West, but in fashion and period. Yeah. I mean, so here you had something that began as a utility or a utilitarian piece of clothing for that particular area, but it's because of the, the, the solution he came up with, rugged, durable, easy to keep clean, lasts forever, or like whatever. What I was surprised about was the denim. I had no idea that came from, from France. France. Because it was always as if American jeans were the best, right? I guess we always thought the material was just some sort of hard cloth or canvas. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I didn't realize that was the... Uh, that's, a, that's a good business birthday, agree. because talk about a... Um, I, again, it's kind of like... Uh, when you had the Roto-Rooter guy on or Ruth Crit, like these are things that change, like Levi Strauss changed a lot, man. That's yeah. Well, I, you know, and finding these birthdays lately, I, I, I do a little more research than, not any more than I did in the past, but I'm trying to find things that you and I'd be interested in versus the <laughs> CEO of <laughs> Bank of America. <laughs> 40 million bucks, yeah, salary, right? So, hey, that, many of you know that Deep Discount's a partner of ours here on the Focus Group. Be sure to go to focusgroupradio.com and click on the Deep Discount logo. And Arr, it's Sharky the Shark. You can own your passion. So, Mr. so right now it's the uh, 60s movie and TV sale, which yes. is a favorite genre yes. of ours. So, John, what did you find this week? I could have, I went down a rabbit hole. I did your trick of moving several pages in, several pages back. And then I clicked on a page and I have mentioned this on the show before. And I'll, it, and I thought, you know what? I need to mention it again because it's a movie that I think needs to be seen. Is <laughs> so it, uh... that's the, up on the, uh, if you're watching the video, the, the sixties TV sale okay. graphic, that's Shirley MacLaine. That's right. That's that's a cartoon of her, but the movie that I picked is on Blu-ray and it's called *The Killing of Sister George*. I think I do remember you. Yes, British that. film, veteran British actress June Buckridge, played by Beryl Reed, has grown smugly complacent about her longtime TV soap opera stint, as well as her domineering relationship with dependent younger lover Alice, played by Susanna York. Now. Uh, June calls the younger one Chaldi. In fact, through the whole movie, Chaldi, come here. Chaldi, rub my feet. Chaldi, make me tea. A liquor-fueled public scandal, however, gives cutthroat network exec Mercy Croft, played by Coral Brown, the leverage to terminate the former and horn in on the latter. So this movie is kind of groundbreaking because it came out in the 60s. It was directed by Bob Aldrich, who I love his directing style. I think it's definitely worth a viewing. Bob and I have seen this a couple times now, and it's... Is it comedy? Or not supposed to be? Okay, so... Tommy Dearest. That is such a funny yes to your second point. So, I'm not sure that it was made... At, Bob Aldrich does, has done comedy. There is, a, there is a comedic level to this, especially when Sister George, you first meet the woman who plays the... That on the soap opera, she's on a scooter, like a Vespa, and she's driving along and she's moving. And then they go, they go and cut, and she's still doing this. And behind her, the screen goes blank because it's one of those projection things, right? And then she gets off the scooter and she's pissed, like I don't want to do this anymore. Killing of Sister George, my recommendation. What do you? Uh... So I have uh, also I, I picked something. I I have a newfound appreciation for Jackie Gleason. 
You do because I watched him on. I watched him so in October, in October 1985, he did his very first uh, appearance on the Johnny Carson, Carson show, show, which everyone was Long surprised interview, about. Right? Yeah, and everybody was like, "Why haven't you been on sooner?" And he was so honest and so warm, and I thought, "Wow, this guy's pretty cool." Because all I knew him from was the buffoon on the honeymooners, which, as a character, was somewhat unlikable, right? Right. And so when you read this, so there's something called the Jackie Gleason Show. So this is a three DVD, three DVD deluxe edition, and uh, it's seventeen dollars fifty five cents. It was released in 2018, but it. It goes from 66 to 70, and the Jackie Gleason show was taped. It says it was taped in color in beautiful Miami Beach. So this was his <laughs> this was his variety show. I don't know which is more appealing, the color or the Miami right. Beach, right? So this was his uh, his variety show, and there's all kinds of characters and skits, and of course the usual guest stars: Jack Benny, George Burns, Milton Berle, Tony Bennett, Mickey Rooney, Groucho Marx, Florence Henderson, Frankie Avalon. You know, you name it. It's not there. expensive either, is it? No, it's it was 17.55. So you you um, three D. DVDs? Yeah, you get three DVDs. And uh, there's, so it's eight, over eight hours of classic entertainment. The interesting thing is there's, um, it's all been remastered in full color and unseen for almost 50 years. A lot of these things were never released before. So they were broadcast, but never and then, then they never the seen ball. again. Okay. So they said there's, uh, there's a number of skits, uh, seven honeymooner sketches that haven't even be seen, haven't been seen since they were originally seven. aired. Seven. Right. And wow. then the other thing that goes with this that I think you should do. So I was I was watching this thing with Carson. Did you know that he was a huge producer of music? No. I had no idea. So he had said he was watching a movie with uh, Clark Gable one day and he said there was he come, he he was watching Clark Gable sit next to a woman on the sofa and this music played and he said, "You know, all you need is good music to get the girl." So <laughs> he never he never read or wrote music, but he would have it in his head and he would get these musicians in and say, "Here's what I want this to sound like." He sold over 10 10 uh, albums of mood music and romantic music. With just him humming, here's what I think these should sound like. Mood music for romantic. Compo basically composed. composing music by humming to a composer. T telling what I think this should feel like. He had more than 10 albums that sold over a million each. You can get one of them here on dis deep discount for $5. It's called Music Martinis and Memories for $5. You're going to order that. I streamed part of it and... It's fantastic. And I don't know how I never heard of it before. And he's got millions of, not millions, he's got... I would say 15, 20 of these albums. That's just great instrumental music from the 50s and 60s. What so was the one you, you, you liked? Um... Well, these, you can get a deep discount. Music, Martinis, and Memories. The CD's $5.15. But uh, it's great. And uh, I was uh, really surprised I had it on. Richard's like, what's this? I said, it's Jackie Gleason. He's like, what? How That is Brilliant, brilliant. All right, so... What's the release this week? Release this week is a movie I really wanted to see in theaters. I missed it, and so I am ordering it. It's uh, called Knives Out. It's on Blu-ray. From director and writer, writer and director Ryan Johnson, who, if you are a Star Wars fan, is at the epic center of the fandom battle of was The Last Jedi a good or a bad movie? And people actually lose sleep over this. Um, I thought Ryan Johnson did a good job with it, but this is a... a classic whodunit. So the circumstances surrounding the death of crime novelist Harlan Trombi, Trombi are mysterious, but there's one thing that renowned detective Benoit Blanc knows for sure. Everyone in the wildly dysfunctional Trombi family is a suspect. So it's Ryan Johnson who wrote and directed it. It stars Daniel Craig, who I heard does a great American accent. Wow. He plays like a Southern detective, I think. 
Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, who I love, Michael Shannon, adore, Don Johnson, who we have not seen since Miami Vice, possibly. Django Unchained. Ah, thank you. Thank you. A great movie. So, okay, he's picking good parts, at least. <laughs> and Tony Collette and Christopher Plummer. So it's Knives Out on Blu-ray. Did you guys happen to see Knives Out at all? Nope. I've heard nothing but good things about it, though. Like, like smart, good. Yeah, I just yeah. saw it advertised. Would I, have, would I have seen it advertised on TV? You could have for streaming or for like Blu-ray. History Channel or something. You, you might have, because this just come, been released for this. this. This came out before the holidays, when Knives Out came out. Um, so, recapping for everybody. Go to focusgroupradio.com, click on Sharky the Shark. Arr, that's Sharky's sound effect here at the Focus Group. And that's the Deep Discount logo. We'll get you to Deep Discount. And uh, the sale this week is 60s movie and TV. Tim picked a three-disc set. Uh, it's a Jackie Gleason show, right? Yep. Live in color from Miami. Miami. <laughs> and he also wants you to check out an album called Music Martinis and Memories, Memories that Jackie Gleason created with a composer and he just simply hummed the tune that he had in his head i like you i know why you're attracted to that because you want to learn piano that way well, i can't try to learn piano ding 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 um i picked a movie that i've recommended before I, it's bob aldrich's the killing of sister george on blu-ray i think it's only 1924 at deep discount and the release this week is knives out ryan johnson's knives out on blu-ray so garrett what do we say Thanks, Deep Discount. We're going to take a super quick break. And when we come back, we have a shop talk about corporate diversity for you. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Focus Group with Tim and John. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. Focus on the savvy side of 9 to 5 with The Focus Group. Try really Listen, laugh, and learn with Tim and John. I never try anything. I just do it. Hello. Welcome to The Focus Group, or welcome back to The Focus Group. Tim Bennett here with my good friend and co-host, John Nash. Learn all about us at focusgroupradio.com. You'll see all of our social media links there, too. And please click like. <laughs> we do like, like, subscribe, like, rate, do you? Subscribe, yeah. like, you know. That, that's, anyway, we'll do, that'd be another show, another yeah, topic. That's a whole... Go to your local click. Go to your local click factory and make an investment in the focus. Go buy group. clicks. <laughs> the, um, you know what? That's what they do. You could drive people to buy clicks for us. Go to a click factory. Spend twenty bucks. Uh, yeah, give get, us a couple yeah, of clicks. Get, 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 click for a pair of socks. <laughs> Got some of those left in purple. We'll talk about this offline. But so, um, yeah. So our shop talk this week is why the business case for diversity isn't working, and this came from the Business Insider, and I was shocked. When I saw the headline, because that's all we ever hear about is uh, this whole diversity in the workplace, inclusion in the workplace. And uh, the, first, the, the first paragraph says here, workplaces and executive boardrooms should reflect the world's diversity. And lots of companies are using so-called business, so business case for diversity to instigate action. But popular as it may be, it's a failed strategy. And I thought that was a very controversial statement. This was a, you know, sometimes Tim accuses me of, uh, oftentimes, <laughs> I'm accused of like falling Academic. for, fall, that's the honey trap, falling for the headline and then suddenly you're stuck in the hive and it's a nonsense article or something. This is interesting because what he's really, the author is really talking about here is this notion that corporations 
are justifying their diversity programs by linking them to an ROI, a return on investment. So when he talks about the business case for diversity, in fact, don't they often call internal organizations that are some, they have a different acronym, right? They're a business unit group or something or... The employee resource groups? Normally that's what they're called, but then they change the business it. Business resource groups. Yeah, something like that. So this idea that, that a diversity has to pay for itself somehow or enrich the bottom line because you're bringing in all these new people or you're making the company more appealing to potential hires isn't working because the ROI on this is, is not really tangible or measurable, right? Right, and they say that, for instance, and they just use gender. So they said to get women at parity oh, with men. That or uh, racial parity. They said racial parity would take over 150 years you know, eat, in, well, in North America. And yeah. for women, I think it would, it would be 50 years or more. Well, that was in the UK. Was that so, the UK? yeah, because I found that same stat. And it basically, it was this. To, for parity to happen in the, in the UK, it's going to be 50 years. And it's 150 years for women to meet, meet the same levels that men are hired at in the United States. And what does that tell you about other ethnicities and uh, cultural, you know, other cultural groups is that they're, they're further down on the, on the ladder than, than you'd expect. Right. And they, and they go to say that there's, so the bus, there's the business case issue, but they said it really is more of a moral and a legal. They said you should start really with the moral idea of it or legal idea of it. And this, this piece here I just, just laughed at because they said essentially what's happened is they call it the inclusion industrial complex. A woman yeah. named Pamela Newkirk I highlighted wrote that a book, well. Diversity, yeah. and she said it's a failed promise that all these billions of dollars are going to happen because of you have diversity policies. And they said essentially you have all of these um, diversity and inclusion professionals that uh, start working at the company, whether it's a chief of inclusion or a director of diversity. And they say what ends up happening is when you have titles like that, and we've all worked with companies that have them, it then becomes, oh, we've got that covered. All set. Basis. All set. Box Somebody else has got diversity box covered. Yeah. We're still going to go along doing what we're doing because we've got a diversity person now. And this, is, this leads right into you and I's feeling about <laughs> things like Out and Equal or the HRC, where all these companies have given money. We used to call it, we still do, guilt money to um, the Out and Equal organization, for instance, and then we're done. We've done our outreach for the LGBTQ um, community. We don't even have to do the pride float this year. And you, the, all the money that's racked up there, but you and I, every time you and I have been asked to speak, we don't get to do it because you and I, and you've started this with them. What are you doing to the consumer? How does the consumer yeah. know you're LGBTQ friendly? You have an eternal policy. What do you do? What's your consumer facing message? And then we get uninvited. <laughs> yeah. So, um, two other stats that came out of the article to to complement what you're saying is, uh, and you'll be able to speak to this directly. The first one was the business case for diversity also provokes people to focus more on economic than equality based metrics of success. As a consequence. When there are downturns in organizational performance, the company might not be doing well, believers in the business case are more likely to see diversity efforts as ineffective and to support dropping the organization's investment in diversity programs. You and I have actually witnessed this happen yes, in multiple companies. companies. Downturn happens. General Motors, during bankruptcy, fired all of their, I'll say, minority minority agencies. So they fired all the agencies that handled African-American, Hispanic, all the small Asian, agencies, yeah. gay and lesbian marketing. 
And as far as I know, not too many have been hired back. No, and they made the business case that, well, we got to downsize, yes. we got to centralize the creativity in one place. But yeah. And then, you know, this also has an insidious effect on people who work at these companies because this next point that he makes is the latest experiments in corporate diversity have found that exposure to an organization's business case for diversity decreased a sense of belonging to that organization for women and for members of the LGBTQ community, which was then associated with lower desire to join and lower performance on the job. So the company comes around and says, well, we're, we're doing inclusion and we're doing diversity and it's a you know, it's ba and they basically the, by outlining it as a business case, join the or join this group, join that. We're going to make things happen. You, you lose interest because it's not about being diverse. It's about looking, you know, justifying the fact that you're on the job as yeah. someone of a diverse background. So, interesting article, though. Yeah, they did say at the at the very end. They said the what um, about what they think should happen. So instead of making it a business case, they said, we need to instead set quotas and return to affirmative action programs, or said differently, eliminate the current systems and unfairly advantage dominant groups. So again, they say the groups that are dominant are going to continue to be dominant because of this issue, again, of the business case, and we've got diversity covered. We're yeah. still going to continue doing what we're doing. And I, and I know people get shocked when I've said this before, but I was a headhunter for four years in the 80s. And this issue of affirmative action or um, quotas um, happened all the time. It very Fortune 10 companies calling, find me, and they would say black at the time. I want a black MBA. I want two female black MBAs. I want, and that's they would go down the list. Here's here's what we want you I mean, guys it's, to it's, recruit. It's laughable, and I, I guess I'm laughing. Um, it's laughable, but it really is. And, and you and I know from corporate work and all our clients that, that it's not that people were poorly intentioned or they were going out of the way to be idiots or, or a-holes about it. But literally it was this, oh, there's a mandate. We got to fill the grid with a certain type of person. And it's almost ludicrous the way they go about and it. And I know right? people say that doesn't happen happens all the time. All it happens. All happens. The time. And I, I remember I had one guy. He was a white guy because he'd come in to visit with me. I called the client and said, I've got this great person I think would be a great fit for your organization. I go through his schooling and da-da-da-da. like, oh, he's a white guy? I said, yeah, well, we don't want him. Unless he came from one of the top, top five MBA. I said, but he's bright, he's this, he's that. I think he'd fit in with your culture. Nope. And, so, and that's why they hire headhunters, right? They want to be able to say, the HR departments can't do it. So you hire these outside firms to say, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I want boom, boom, boom. So that's what they're saying needs to go back to. Them. Well, they're saying it needs to go back to this affirmative action and quotas. And to that observation you just made, a friend of mine who works at a not-for-profit, the mandate came down that they had to hire a, uh, a person who was going to be doing some development work, but it had to be uh, from the African-American community. And... The headhunters that they worked with were all like, okay, we'll figure it out. But normally we work from filling the skill that you need with the appropriate person. Nope. And, and it's, we're blind to who that person is. You just need someone to do it. So in their case, luckily, the, the last candidate they interviewed and that it was sent to them uh, was a really cool woman of color. And she fit the bill perfectly. And she's in the job and everybody loves her. And that was a great 
it was a win-win, but um, even the headhunters were like, you, you can't be serious. You're, you're looking for a very specific thing, and then you add this on top yeah. of it, right? That's when Brian and I went to go do that thing in the city of Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And then we were, we were told we weren't diverse enough. We weren't going to even get a chance to bid on the project for that bicycling. And you're like, well, thing. we're LGBT. We're, didn't count. No. I remember that. You guys were really not happy. <laughs> well, we were the we were the most qualified people there. Sitting in the room. And yeah. based upon what they were looking for, what they wanted to have done. And it was very frustrating. Yeah, and depressing. Life's not fair. No, and this art, but this was not a bad article. And I think that the takeaway at the very end of it, he says, diversity by itself will not produce the benefits that companies and policymakers wish to achieve, meaning the bottom lines, yeah. but it will eventually arrive. And the business case will be there when it does, but it's going to happen through what you said earlier, legislation and, uh, a, you know, an eye towards legal requirements for doing this. All righty. We're going to wrap up this show. We want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you to everybody in the booth for their hard work today. We want to thank Deep Discount. Uh, go to Deep Discount by going to our site, focusgroupradio.com, clicking on the shark logo. Arr, Sharky the shark. It's the 60s movie and TV sale. Tim picked a very cool three DVD set for like $17.95 or something. It's a Jackie Gleason show. Um, my pick was a movie called The Killing of Sister George, which I highly recommend. <laughs> I love the British accent. Killing of Sister George. Well, the movie is British. And uh, the release this week is another movie I really wanted to see, and I am going to see it because I'm ordering it. And it's from writer-director Ryan Johnson. It's Knives Out. It did really well with the critics, and it did pretty well at the box office, so check that out. Don't text and drive. Arrive alive, and we're going to see you in the new week. It's The Focus Group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Accessible on all platforms. Subscribe, like, and rate us on your platform of choice. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. That was a stunning focus group.